0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Immaculate.
1: Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Robin Turner, who has just brought out a new book. This is titled Believe in Magic. It's a fully illustrated history of one of the most colourful and exciting independent British record labels. It is heavenly, the story of, um, which was set up by Jeff Barrett in 1990, but was also doing PR in the 80s. So this is it. The book has just come out, just to say, um, on White Rabbit. And it is titled, I might have already said this, Believe in Magic. It is quite a beautiful page-turning publication, so do check it out. It's available from All Good Bookshop and also online. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat and various other bits and pieces to do with Brutus. Yes, it's the computer age. Um, we got down to the history that was heavenly. This is going to be Robin telling us more robin it's over to
2: you heavenly started in 1990 so what you're saying there you know it, it, it's post that period but its roots very much began in the period you're talking about because jeff um jeff barrett who founded the label who um still runs the label you know that's it's it's, it's been his thing from day one to day now and his kids one of his kids works there now so it's a proper you know it's 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 an empire um but jeff started out in putting out no he started out working in record shops in in plymouth and then in bristol he worked for hmv in plymouth and one of the he was the singles buyer just a kid from nottingham who kind of who knew his music and one of the first records that he bought in was um was the first smith single which is hand in glove, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's hand in glove before what difference does it make? yeah. Um, and so he, he was buying in, he, he bought in that record and sold a, an extraordinary amount of it through Revolver, which was the distributor. Revolver, you know, a, a short time afterwards offered him a job. He went to move, he moved to Bristol to work in Revolvers Record Shop. They had a distribution arm, um, you know, they were one of the big distribution networks at that point. And then from there, he he found Alan McGee's phone number on one of the early creation sevens, it would have been. It's pretty pre-Mary chain. Um and rung him up and just said i want to put some of your bands on in plymouth and mcgee turned around and said you know i put them on in london and no one comes why the hell are they going to come and see him in plymouth <laughs> it ended up with him putting on a mary chain gig in plymouth where and this is the genius of jeff barrett you know they they were being um they were kind of being known for putting on these kind of riotous gigs in places you know playing for 15 minutes and Having these kind of riotous situations. And so Jeff rung the local paper, having booked the gig, said, um, yeah, have you heard about this riotous, this blasphemous riot band who are coming to Plymouth? And it ended up kicking off in the local papers to the point where you know the gig's completely sold out. You end up with like police on horseback outside. And so that and so Jeff had a big involvement in that that period of time but also what he became from there he became creation's first ever employee and then after and and, and what he worked out from from working at creation was that maybe what his forte was was kind of press um and he so he did pr for lots of the creation bands as thing got bigger you know he did um, isn't anything, and he did the House of Lo- first House of love record. I think he did. Um, he did the scream. Um, lots, of, lots of things like that, and then he he got a gig doing Factories press at that point as well. So that was New Order, the Mondays, and and the label came out of that. So the, sorry, long long answer to to what you asked. The period <laughs> we're talking about very specifically heavenly is completely rooted in there it's that's it wouldn't have existed with it in all the different ways you know in 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 terms of how to build a band how to plug a band uh, in terms of acid house bubbling up underneath making things kind of interesting and changing things and making possibilities you know in, in places you didn't think they'd be available um mm. so yeah that, it- that, that label really
0: That's quite, you know, it's kind of interesting because I I was thinking about Alan McGee recently, as you do. Um, yeah, because I suppose it's that Malcolm Gladwell kind of thing about the is it 10,000 hours you have to put in before something happens? And I remember looking at Alan McGee's kind of world of putting on bands, you know, was it in London there was some venue, was it Mm. the living room that he had? Yeah. And then, and obviously, a lot of those bands from the eighties were, which I loved, you know, because I was an indie kid in that period. But they didn't; they weren't never going to make you rich, were they? You know, from moments to a lot of them, I suppose. But then, you know, you have to have that experience before you hit the big time a few years later, because it's very easy for people to say, "Oh, don't I signed, you know, the, you know, away, you know, the Oasis. It would have been marvelous But you have to sort of do the apprenticeship work, and I guess. Um, Jeff had the same kind of world. The '80s were sort of building those hours and those networks up, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, he 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 had he had a couple of labels at that point. Um, he had a label called Sub Aqua and a label called Head. And Head, I think, was a little bit more successful. And they had um, uh, Loop were on Head and a band called East Village. And East Village, who uh, not not a vast amount of people have heard of. I mean, they're a big cult band, but... Yes, I, do, I, do. I
0: managed to track down one of the members and talk to them, because there was one particular single that had the most beautiful cover on it, actually, it was a young woman, sort of, I don't know, drinking don't know, from a straw, and it just was... That's, just the cover, that's, that's the
2: cover of the album, that's Dropout. But so, which, was desi- which is designed by Paul Kelly, who did the Heavenly Book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to easy. say that is that.
0: I mean, the cover itself is just so beautiful. You
2: kind of want. to yeah. yeah, it's cover of Dropout, the album. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. It's um, it's um, it's a beautiful picture. But it's uh, 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 Paul and Martin from East Village who Jeff put their records, their early records out on little indie labels. They, you know, Paul Paul ended up being a designing lot Etienne sleeves and. And then ended up doing. He did believe he did the Heavenly book with me, and Martin ended up co-running Heavenly with Jeff. So in the book, he's he's Jeff's one of the voices who talks, you know, who tell, tells the story, and Martin's one of the other ones. Yeah. That's
0: even, so and also know. because there was also another other band which I thought was going to be big, which obviously is a kiss of death, was a band I think from Manchester called Laugh, who did a song called. Take your time, yeah, and also Paul McCartney, which I seem to remember. I think they only yeah. got a few singles; they didn't even get an album. I they
2: just... became into Stella, didn't
0: they? That's right, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. They, they, I
0: think were they on, were they on Head or Sub I Why can't not? remember which one it was, but you're right. They won, yeah. a, you know, because I thought they just had a great sound, but it was very much of its time. You know, the C86 sound is very much of its time. It doesn't. You know, it sounds all right.
2: <laughs> is, it, is anyone still manage? Is anyone still doing the C eighty six sound you know, su- successfully in uh, in twenty twenty?
0: I don't know, but I guess Cherry Red, who keep bringing out these compilations, realise there must be a market because they put out C eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, and ninety. Yeah. You know, as triple CD box set, so there was there was all this stuff, and you know, bands like Laugh and and, and East Village have definitely got that cult status that some geeky person. You know who wasn't about at the time would quite like them but i don't know if anyone's gonna listen to them now but i did read somewhere that the uh that's a, that the uh, you know instruments are being sold more than ever by young to young women who are sort of starting bands there is a sort of a change in oh,
2: So there's, there's, there's hope then
0: there could <laughs> be hope so then how did heavenly because with most people right they have a five-year narrative don't they you know they have that period where they're in a zeitgeist moment and then yeah most bands, you know, you must know, after five years, just called it quits for various reasons, A, they hate each other and B there's no money. But most, but then you get these characters like Alan McGee, and you also get Jeff, who have that period, and then think, you know what, this is going so well, I'm going to stick with it. So how how does Jeff keep his enthusiasm for the decade, next decade?
2: He's more than anyone I've ever met. He's somebody who's actually... Uh, I know it sounds... It's. It, it's it, it sounds it sounds sort of um, trite but you know he he lives and breathes music in a way that i don't i've never really experienced i'd never i'd never experienced before i saw him last week in um i not seen him not seen him the whole time in lockdown normally we you know we'd see each other once every month or two and um you know and he's still just you know he's consumed by music but not in a way that's at all wanky. It is utterly uh, enveloping, you know, it, it, it he he invites you in all the time. There's no there's no um, there's no one-upmanship. There's no there's nothing snobby about it. It's just like if he's heard a record that's phenomenal, it's he's he's playing it to you. And that's very much like a DJ would, very much like uh you know, but uh, you know, like a radio DJ, like, ah, you know, this is a mate, you gotta And that comes through in everything and it's and that that spirit is is it's it's really it's part of the heavenly ethos and it it's 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 fed through to all of the bands that are on there. So I, I talk a lot in the book about how the office is like a it's like another character in the whole thing you've got you've got jeff and you've got martin and then you've got bands but the office is a thing as well because the office would be like this kind of clubhouse where people would descend on at different times of the day or night a lot of the time of the night and you'd find that um you know you just have all sorts of random people in there, all just getting off on music all the time. And so Heavenly was kind of, it wasn't a 24 hour pursuit, but it was definitely a kind of, you know, an 18 hour pursuit. It didn't fit, you know, you maybe got a couple of hours sleep, six hours sleep or something, but it did—it definitely didn't ever really stop at the times when another record label might. And so people knew that you could drop in at, you know, you could go into, you could go to Heavenly at, nine o'clock on a monday night and there's probably a party going and the music would be really good and the beer the the fridge would be full of beer and you can just have a have a riot it's going to be brilliant and and it just meant that it just meant that the whole thing felt like a community always you know it felt like it felt like you were being invited into us into a kind of this kind of club anyone was invited you know we had points where random people were just walking off the street because the music was good you know thinking it was a club um, and you just like well whatever it doesn't matter you know as long as they're not as long as they're not idiots fine and so it was you know i have worked for lots of record labels as a pr and that doesn't happen anywhere else you know it just doesn't you know major labels or indie labels you just don't have that kind of open door policy you you know and that's 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 all down to jeff that's all yeah. down to
0: so, how did you cope? you know because obviously, I think it was in the book I' got it, but um you you sort of turn up you you know and you're doing the press. this is a new experience for you, I guess well, I mean,
2: I was a lot younger and <laughs> a lot more up for it <laughs> you know I, I I you know we started and it was kind of like this is a am- this is amazing, you know because it just felt you'd be in the office and you know i <clears throat> Excuse me. I was 23 years old, and I was, a, you know, a huge Primal Scream fan, like a you know massive Primal Scream fan. And then, you know, the first thing I was tasked to do from Heavenly was to work on "Give Out, But Don't Give Up," which, you know, let's face it, it's not the band's finest hour. But Jeff, being a, an amazing PR man, managed to convince everyone that it was. And, I, and so, I, as, you know, I was getting into doing press and I was watching this this, this person, this master at work. You know, he was, he was literally telling people, you know, black is white. He, like People were like, yeah, but I really want them to make, you know, I want Screamy Delicate too. I, you know, uh, no, no, this is what you want. <laughs> All right. And then, you know, you've got, it was insane, you know. I watched him get the cover of The Face, cover of Select, you know, sort of Melody Maker enemy, you know, sort of nine out of 10 reviews, and then people would be going, oh, the album's rubbish. You're like, well, you, you didn't say that. You said it was amazing. <laughs> and it was it was incredible. It was like the most, and he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything untoward. He just managed to talk people into liking a record they didn't think they didn't, they didn't actually like. It was amazing. <laughs> and that, yes. was, that, so that was my, that was, that was my entry point. I was like, holy shit, that's
0: amazing. <laughs> And I guess at the time, you know, you because know, in the 80s we had the three music papers and Record Mirror and we had the kind of gatekeeper that was John Peel, who was kind of important. Obviously, he was there, there in the 90s. But then, yeah, the, the, the 80s, then the 90s came and you had these kind of flashy magazines. So do, did you have to sort of do quite a lot of work to kind of get into places like the Face and Blitz and Arena Magazine?
2: When I, when I was, when I started doing PR, uh, it was down to... It was down to the face and ID and he didn't get much in ID because it was m- much more fashion um, and the face were always really good to us you know they, there was a chap who worked there called Ashley Heath, who's a brilliant bloke who did who, who just he, he I think Jeff had sent him records when he was a he ran a student newspaper and he you know he that, that's the you know Jeff if if you got in touch with Jeff, Jeff's the kind of person who would send you records if you ran a student newspaper. And, and those, those people, when they rose up the ranks tended to pay it back. So, you know, if you've been nice to people, you know, you've let some kid at the door of a, you know, you, you let some kid into a gig for free because they, they haven't got any cash on them. And then the next thing they're, you know, they're a band headlining, you know, they're, they're in a brilliant band. They remember you. And so there's a lot of that a Heavenly, certainly from, from jeff yeah um, it's a bit so, like the
0: god it's a bit like the godfather isn't it yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's exactly what it's like <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, yeah. not sure what the horse's head in the, i'm not sure you get a horse's head in the bed for bad primal scream review maybe i don't know mm.
0: so then you know because obviously it's got this amazing you know, like reputation and, and, and i have to say the book is incredibly beautiful but then you have bands like flowered up who They were quite bizarre, aren't they? Because there was was it right? There was a bidding war for Flowered Up and 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 all that malarkey was that kind of an urban myth.
2: What? No, I mean Jeff. I think Jeff got them before anyone even really knew what they what they were. They weren't really a band, and so you know when when Jeff Dares, who managed them, as a you know he's he's the 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 chap I spoke to for the book. Um, He's still a really good mate of ours. He, he kind of, having seen the Roses playing at Dingwalls, he concocted the idea of kind of a London answer to the Roses and 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 the Mondays, without really having the tools to do that. They had a they had a guy who could front a band, Liam, but he couldn't really sing and and he didn't really know what he wanted, whether he wanted to be that, and so they they. They sort of pieced this band together, you know, got three songs together to play in kind of clubs like, you know, proper underground dance clubs like Monkey Drum and, and you know, things like that, you know, clubs that A&R people wouldn't really know what, what was going on. And Jeff was very much part of that construction. And so the band, he, he got the band together. So Des got the band together. And so the band kind of grew into an actual band rather than just a couple of people with a few little ideas and, and trying to make some demos, you know, they, they, they sort of built it into something that was a bit more like a, you know, they could play a gig or, or you know they could do more than three songs and heavenly were in for the first two singles, but it's very similar to the Mannix. You know, they, they, when you were, when you're successful at that level Quite often, somebody's going to come along with a checkbook and just go, I'll have that. And that's what happened with Flowered Up. And the Mannix was that as well. But that was always out in the open that that would happen. I think I think Jeff was, you know, upset that he couldn't make Flowered Up. He couldn't keep Flowered Up and do more with them and, and make a better record with them. You know, the first album is just not very good. Um, it, yes. you know, it went they signed to London and it's just a, it's a, it's, it doesn't sound right. It's just not very great. Not, not great. Whereas the Mannix, they, their intention was always to do, and and, you know, known to Jeff, known to, you know, the Heavenly, um, their intention was always to do a couple of indie singles and then jump onto a major label. That's, so it's all done with good grace at that point. There's no, no no one's nose is put out of joint by them then signing to Sony. That was always the plan. Um but flowered up, I think the bidding war happened on you know, heavenly can put out a single and have these, you know, all all the all the press and everything could be going and it could be going crazy. But then you just can't hold on to it because, you know, it, it needs money. You know that's the that's the annoying thing. <laughs> these things, it's like, you know, you you, you can you can talk, you know. You can try to, you can try to make things work on a shoestring. But if you've got, you know, five five kids in a band who want a tour and stuff, you need money from place from different places just to make it function. And that's yes. and you know, Flowered Up got offered decent money from London Records. You know, the, the sad thing is, is that completely screwed them because <laughs> they got decent money, but all the money went on drugs. So <laughs> not, yes. not all of A proportion of the money.
0: And that must be quite a a kind of, is it a humbling experience, kind of when you look at some of the bands and the damage that kind of, or death that goes along with it. Do you think, God, we slightly played a part of that or did you think, well...
2: Well, I wasn't there then, so I'm not going to, I I, I didn't hold my hands up and say nothing to do with me. Um, And no, when we flowered up were, that's the best way to describe them. they were loose before they ever got there. And so they were always going to be that. It's just when they signed to London, you know, they got given a, a lot of money, which they thought was theirs. No, it wasn't theirs. It was, you know, it's a major label deal. So, part of it is recording, part of it is marketing, part of it is, you know, it's it it, it works in a few. You know, it's it's meant. To, you know, there's a, there's a wage, and then there's there's the other bits, which are the, the bits to actually make the record and make it work. And um, I think they believed the money was all theirs. So, so in heavenly, you know, heavenly can hold up their hands and completely innocently at that point, because that wasn't them, you know, it's <laughs> nothing to do with them. And, and and we we never, you know, going back to the whole idea about family and community, I was talking about a minute ago, but, you know, we never had any, anything like, you know, we, in all the time I worked there, which was the best part of 20 years, and I and I'd still keep a pretty close eye on what they're doing you know with i still run, have, have different things i do with jeff work wise um you know they've never they've never had anything like that since you know no, no one I've, i can't think of any bands that i've worked with have ever fallen apart that spectacularly apart no. from vines, with the vines yeah. the, the, the vines but that was a very different story yeah. and and it, and it got a lot bigger and it got a lot madder. But anyway, that's it didn't involve heroin. So that's a that was that's a plus side.
0: Yes, it wasn't Sp- it wasn't Spaceman three, was it? Which wasn't good. <laughs> yes. So as the as the sort of Britpop pop period happened, did you I mean did it because when you were describing you know the heavenly office, did it seem a bit like you were in the, the Andy Warhol factory? Did they feel that sense of kind of my god, we are really this is gonna last forever?
2: yes <laughs> when you put it like that at the end bit, there was points where and I think I, I don't think I, I don't want I talked about this in the book but there was a few times where it not, not at least going to last forever I am where, you know like you're kind of golden gods like you know um, almost famous or whatever it was there was points where you'd, you'd get a record in and there was, there's a couple of examples I can remember. There was He's on the Phone by Saint-Etienne, and There Goes the Fear and Black and White Town by Doves. And I remember those tracks arriving in the office, and either Martin or Jeff, whoever had taken delivery of the dat from the, from the studio, coming and going, you've got to hear this. And you go in, and you put this track on, and you everyone would just congregate around the stereo. You have it on full volume to the point where the speakers almost blow, and um, and we'd just be there jumping up and down, screaming "Number One forever!" And he had this firm belief that this record that you that had just been delivered was going to be was going to be so huge that it would just make a difference. You know whether it made a difference to the office, difference to the band, or whether you know. And of course, <laughs> you know, as we know he's on the phone black and white town and there goes the fear we're not number one forever um, you know there goes the fear was number two for a week uh, which is pretty brilliant and black and white town I think was top five maybe higher I'm not sure and he's on the phone was number 11 I think but you know you just convince yourself and you think this is it this is it you know we've we've got something here which is um, <laughs> which is going to change things but you know it doesn't didn't happen and no one you know it's not the end of the world you know you move on to you know we wait for the next one
0: yeah <laughs> so when you look back at the heavenly story is there a point where you can see now something really you know, there was a change you know from that kind of heart you know the harmonious honeymoon period where everything is kind of a bit of luck but a lot of hard work and everything is kind of a, the, the planets are lining up and then that moment where when you look back yeah there was there was a moment where something altered and and suddenly, you know, we all get a bit of a reality check. Well,
2: yes, but only in my story. So I worked there until 2009 um, when um, we got, we, we were part, we were we were affiliated with EMI and EMI had been bought by guy hands um and fame you know famously a venture capitalist who didn't know anything about music
0: yeah. and
2: he bought he bought emi and suddenly it was like a yard sale and things were all going sad people were getting sold off we were put on gardening leave um i.e we couldn't sign any bands uh and and so you know you take stuff in and it was just like can't do it can't do anything because they knew that they, they were going to drop us and so I left in mid 2009. My, my 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 partner told me that she was pregnant and it was like, I've got to try and find another job. You <laughs> know, this is over. And so Heavenly then moved to, moved out of the West End and moved to Portobello Road. And I, and I was living in Hackney and it was too, too. I couldn't get in. It was just too much of a two hours travel, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't do it. And so... We you know we agree, you know i I just stopped going in, and you know we as I said, I still work with Jeff on things like the social and caught by the river, and you know, I've got lots of things I still do with him, but there's no point being in heavenly at that point it did that felt like a reality check. what Jeff did with, with danny who 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 works there with him um and and then a, a sort of new generation of people is he he picked it up again via. Pias, who, distrib- who who they did a distribution deal with, and and I, I remember going to see Toy with him at Shacklewell Arms because that was really near where I lived, and I told him about it because um, Martin Hall, who manages the Mannix, was was managing them, and I, and I said to Joe, you know got to go and see this band, Martin saying they're amazing, and we went and I just, it was like watching a you know you could almost see the light bulb going off over his head. And he, as soon as he started working with them, it was, that's like the opening of a, of a third chapter of the thing. So you've got, you know, sort of period pre, pre-EMI. EMI was quite a long, long bit, you know, Doves, uh, Magic Numbers, Vines. And then the bit post that is just, you know, and there's probably as many releases since 2010 as there is in the entire rest of the catalogue. You know, so there's probably as many in 10 years as there was in 20 years before. There's so, you know, it's, and, and they're just, they're firing and it's, and he's refound an energy which, when he was working with, with majors, just seemed to be kind of neutered in a way. You know, you, you have to, EMI only ever wanted you to sign things they thought were going to be enormous. And so you take in the white stripes, which we did. And they'd be like, "It's never going to work." Why is that going to work? And you're like, "Well, who cares? It's brilliant." <laughs> like, no, no, no. We have to know. We have to know that we can sell at least a hundred thousand copies. Otherwise, not worth it. Well, of course, it went on to sell multi, multi millions of copies. But you know, the bean counter at EMI at that point is not interested in the fact that you're speculating that it might do well. They're telling you it's not going to do well. And so, even though the EMI period for us was brilliant because we 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 had some massive bands you know magic numbers were huge doves were huge vines were huge you know everything it was a really brilliant point in all of our lives it got to a bit where you were kind of you just couldn't actually do anything you know they wouldn't you take taken great records you know and nah nah i just don't want to do it no it's not going to work not going to work and you know you, you you sort of lost the will to argue in the end and so as I said the, the part after I left that's when it's kind of they've gone they they've you know they've kind of hunkered down changed changed the um changed the way changed the method of how they work and it's been you know it's i I think it's made it a, a, a incredible label now I mean I I, I I can now look at it as a fan as well rather than somebody who works there and it's you know I can't think of any other label doing you know any other British rock and roll label that does anything like what they do, but
0: yes. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's quite a few. I mean, there's a lot of labels that just say that's enough. You know, like <laughs> tiny. All I can think of is Sarah Records, actually. But then there's other people like you know I mean, the trade, Sarah, the, Sarah. We love them. But <laughs> um, you know, I suppose you had the, the the rough trade period where that went well, and then that goes bad, and then mm. then Jeff kind of picks it up again, doesn't he, and sort of mm. runs with it. And I guess you know Heavenly has the same thing where you have your honeymoon. And the relationships beautiful. Then you have this tricky kind of you know conversations, and then things pick up again if you want to.
2: Yeah, I mean that, that 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 that's it though. You have to want to, you know. It's and with with Jeff, his thing, you know, we he he lost the will to do it after the MI bit. He kind of you know he'll, say, he'll he'd say this himself if he was here. You know, he lost the 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 uh, you know the, the the energy and then seeing toy was the thing that was just like you can you know you, you look at it and you've got you know a bunch of sort of early 20s kids you know making druggy psychedelic rock you're like yeah that'll do that's good you know <laughs> you, you know you can, you can see you can see loop in there you know you go back to pre-heavenly and you can see flowered up you can see you know i in, in the kind of grooves and you can see doves in the kind of you know you, you can see and you can see the manics in there. You can see lots of different things. Not that they're probably influenced by any of those things. It's just you can go, oh you know, you can look at it along a lineage of, of the you know of of the bands that you've worked with in the past and just go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh you know, all it takes is one good rock and roll band, I think.
0: Yes. And obviously, you know, within our, our little humble and relatively short time span. So much has changed, hasn't it? From when you look at those kind of pictures of offices, you, you kind of think, my God, where's the computer? Look at those filing cabinets. You know, when there's pictures of the NME office and it just looks like a little living room with some dodgy not posters, just a few posters, but a few filing cabinets. And you look at it, you know, you look at an you know, office now, it's so different. I mean, what's the main main major changes that you've experienced kind of working in? music industry plus you know the PR because because you obviously would have seen those documentaries on people like Jimmy Iovine, and then you would have seen the fire festival you know which never happened with those guys and the influencers so how do you manage to keep going you know how do you not become the old gig, the old guy at the at the gig who looks a bit out of place but someone who knows how to uh well when
2: for me (laughs) as a PR I tend to end up working with old kids, so it's kind of you can you find that you know I've, I've personally found that I'm dealing less and less with young people's magazines and more and more with things like classic rock and prog because you know suddenly you're like, is there a prog aspect to this band? I can <laughs> you know which is which you know it's uh, you know those, those you know magazines whether what what I've found is. You know those magazines and specialist magazines like Electronic Sound, Prog, Classic Rock. Those the, the magazines that know their audience really, really well. You know, and sell decent amounts, but to a really focused audience who who will, will listen to music and buy music and buy books and buy. It's you know if you if you've got bands that kind of fit into those those niches, uh, it's a lot easier because. You've got people there who are actually fans. What was difficult, and this was really hard this year, was if you're kind of, you know, I I used to write for Q and lots of my very, very good mates ran it. You know, Ted and Niall and, and the brilliant mates still are. And I think it's harder to sell the mainstream than it is to sell specialists, you know, the, the edges of the mainstream. So you can see why something like Q goes because you kind of look at it and go, "Well, how do you sell it? How do you sell it in Tesco's? What is it?" You know, and and so it's it it's it's what the specialist stuff seems to be doing. It just seems to be an easier sell in twenty twenty, mm. maybe that shift. But yeah. you know, I I I was I was you know I was really shocked and pretty upset when Q went down because it's you know it was. I love the people who did it, and I loved it as a magazine, but I could see you know you you can see how the the center goes and the and the edges are still there and still all you know still working but yeah yes
0: we want we want our ten pages of kind of in depth nerdy conversation or you know analysis don't we that's that's the, we are the mojo people, aren't we really let's face it so,
2: exactly exactly all the prog people or the or the classic rock people or the or the electronic sound people you know it's it's that that's it's you know there's not enough space for those retro retrospective things about interesting odd things that happened years ago you know that's that's you know
0: yes we, yeah. we, we want to read about David Bowie's Berlin period again but look <laughs> that comes back to um your book which is quite a masterpiece isn't it so when did you decide to think god you know what because a lot of people have been bringing out books lately, and I have a theory. After doing this show for quite a few years, that, that sort of a, a, a passing of time, mostly twenty-five to thirty years, suddenly we look back and think, "Hey, wait a minute! Don't throw all that stuff in the bin. Let's let's put a, let's archive it, put it in a museum, or even <laughs> make a book of it." So, um, when did you you have the spark?
2: So I, I mean, I I probably started mentally not long after I started working there because. I remember writing a piece about primal about being on the road with Primal Scream in in '97, which isn't no, didn't make anything to do with the book, but it was just this idea of documenting what was happening around me. Um, and and I talked to Jeff about doing it for quite a while, all through the when I was working there, when I stopped working there, and then you know every few years we'd 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 kind of dig up the idea and and what was really lucky about it was that paul paul kelly and martin kelly east village brothers from east village um they're both absolute hoarders and so they've never got rid of anything and so all of the ephemera that's in there is all stuff they've kept they you know it's not we didn't have to trawl around to find stuff but they got you know every badge every flyer every I don't have anything you know I, I can you know I've moved house loads of times and you know gone through all you know all, all sorts of you know mad stuff that's ended up that I you know I travel with very little now but uh or move with very little but they've got everything in lockups and so we knew we knew that we had this this basis of you know this visual information to base it on and and it seemed for a while that the task of doing a book about the 30 years of heavenly would just be too much. So That's when I just thought, well, let's just do 30 things from 30 years. And those 30 things don't have to be big records. They can be people or they can be um, clubs or they could be, you know, a festival or something. And so so we, we, I drew out a map of what I thought it should be, what I thought the interesting things were and went for it. And Jeff didn't you know, he kept completely out of it, he didn't, he didn't want to, he didn't want to influence what I was trying to do, or what Paul was trying to do, which was really nice, I mean, at, at points you're like, are we getting this right, you know, because obviously it's a heavenly book, and so are we missing artists, you know, should I be writing more about the Orioles? should I be writing less about, you know, uh, the Mannix, you know, because that was, a, you know, Mannix is a very short period of time, but you know, I think we got the balance right. I think we did. No one to tell me otherwise, so.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's an, it, you know, I have to say it's, it's, it's been beautifully, you know, put together, but it's also a great story and for nerdy people like me. You know, you just can't get enough <laughs> of it, really, can you? Because there has been, I just noticed there was, what Phil Savage brought his book out, didn't he? And then Mick Houghton brought his book out. And then, yeah, know, been loads I of love and, I love and, and, and there's just been endless books on sort of, lots of photographers who have decided oh my god actually I've got this archive I might die soon I better just bring my book out as well from you know the CBGBs and Maxis Kansas City and all that kind of stuff so I've just noticed that kind of like wow everyone's going through their files so what, what, what was the kind of any particular things that you discovered doing it or was it all like yeah actually I'm quite familiar with this story
2: I was uh I mean I've I worked with the Mannix a lot over the years and i've interviewed them countless times because i do lots of stuff for lots of stuff of websites and things you know interview and and i interviewed james about that period and he was really interesting and he said stuff that i didn't know like um like he he blamed himself for the fact that he thought that the the recording of "You Love Us" for Heavenly, he blamed himself for the fact that it hadn't been right, and I'd never known that. I've always just thought, "Ah, it's all right. You know, it's good. It's good. It's a good, good single." The the version that they recorded for Sony is better, but he, you know, he was trying to make the version he made for Sony on Heavenly, but couldn't do it. He wasn't. He wasn't at that point in his career. He didn't in the career. Awful, awful you to, you, word to use there. He wasn't. He just didn't. He had the ambition, but not the. He couldn't realise it. And and he he was saying about how the effect that had on the band. And shortly afterwards, that's when Richie cut his arm, did the full real thing, and it was just it was a really odd. And, and that's something I hadn't really ever put together before. Was that his, him beating himself up about it. Ended up in that react. The reaction to it was Steve Lamac, um, goading Richie to the point where he cuts himself. That's yeah. You know, everyone knows that bit, but I didn't know the bit before. It never it never made any it never made an impression on me before, and that 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 was quite affecting really because I thought well, you know that's something to carry. That's that's a that's quite a heavy thing to carry on you, you know. To think that you're partially responsible for something as, you know, for things going like that.
0: Did you you feel that Mannix had a bit of a a problem of wanting to be taken more seriously because when they came out I mean for me I suppose I thought oh they look like a bit of a young band I'm almost feeling a bit of an old dude here because they seem to be a bit more gimmicky than yes you know what i've experienced in the 80s i suppose so i i sort of looked at them as like oh actually this this is where i'm beginning to feel my age in a way even though i might been in my early 30s because that happened at norwich Arts center didn't it um yeah a great moment it all looked a little bit like they were you know and they had the clothes and they would come out with those kind of flippant statements about you know hating glass and and stuff like that so it was kind of like oh yeah you're just doing that number
2: so 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 you know i'm i'm from the same Part of the world as them. I'm from Newport. They're from Blackwood, you know, just up the road. Um, and when I when I was growing, when I was back to leave, I left London. I left for London in 1990, just before. And so the last thing I did in Newport before I left was I put on a flowered up gig in the on the on the, the first tour. So I I didn't know anyone at Heavenly. I got you know I I I got the number off the back of a record like off the back of a record or in fact I didn't the record was now I I think i have run director inquiries or something uh, <laughs> but um and I I got so I got hold of I I booked them and James and Richie came to the gig um I didn't know them either and they turned up to the gig and they were asking if Jeff Barrett was there because I was doing the door at this point we we'd we'd sold we'd literally sold the venue out twice we it was held 150 people and we got 300 in there it was completely crazy and they turned up and they were asking if Jeff or Bob Stanley from Senetian were there and they looked like and they looked crazy you know they looked they looked exactly like they do in the photos turning up to a flowered up gig in you know in in TJ's on a Monday evening in August you know spray painted stuff and I let them in because they obviously you know they they knew you know they they were trying to find people they knew they were and and I remember thinking you know I'm from that town and if you're walking around that town looking like that you are probably going to build up a you're probably going to build up a pretty hard steely exterior and so all that stuff, you know, the kind of, you know, the madness that they came out with early on, it was genuine because they were, you know, walk down Newport High Street on a on a on a Monday night on the way to a flowered up gig. You're probably going to get the shit kicked out of you if you're dressed <laughs> like that. You kind of need to be able to cover yourself. And so I think a lot of that, a lot of that, what probably might have come across as being a bit, you know, it's like, you know a kind of weird form of aggression, was defence, because that's what, you know, that's what South Wales was like in 1990. I know, I, I grew up, I was there, that's why I left. Um, and so, you know, I think they, uh, I think it, it's an underrated part of that, that band's history, is that they were, you know, they, they <laughs> there's reasons why they became, you know, as... As, uh, as hard and aggressive and, I mean, they're not aggressive, they're soft as you know, they're soft as anything, but you know, they, they became as kind of um, angry and, and and determined you know yes. like, yeah.
0: Did you feel a bit schizophrenic in the press department, in the sense that you had bands like that, and then you had the Rockingbirds, and then you had Beth Orton, and just thinking, my god what, you know, the, the identity of the, the label was quite interesting wasn't it, in that sense of like
2: well, well, as the press office, it was even more um, it was even more uh, fractured because I, I did, you know, I, I I was I I brought in my specialism, which was, you know, I I I worked with Underworld prior to Dubno Base coming out in, so I worked with Underworld from '93. Then I started working with the Chemical Brothers because the Chemical Brothers, or the Dust Brothers as they were then known, because they were managed out of the Heavenly office, and so I was doing the Rocking Birds and Beth Orton and Primal Scream's country rock out, you know, you know, country rock blues album, and Underworld and the Chemical Brothers, which was the music that I was, you know, that that was what I was into, um, and so it was, yeah, it was it was, but that I think that was that was part of it heavenly ethos, you know, heavenly Heavenly wouldn't exist without the influence and the kind of support of someone like Andrew Weatherall. And so, you know, and Andrew made, you know, records, some of which were, you know, lovely Balearic records, made Beth Orton records, made some stuff that was punishing techno, you know, unlistenable techno. You know, and I'm, I I love that, <laughs> you know, my kind of music, but sometimes you're like, oh, my God, whoa. He'd <laughs> you know, go through periods where he was, he was making heavy stuff, and so you know that was Heavenly was always about that. You know, Jeff's Jeff Jeff's Jeff's um, default music is is kind of uh, it's it's somewhere between kind of a, a sort of alt country, beautiful um, beautiful deep soul and. Kind of strictly rhythm house records you know he's not he's he's and he, you know you, you can flip from one to the other easily and it'll all make sense uh <laughs> or De- dexies as well you know those 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 are the things that kind of fuel the office so and um, yeah i don't i don't know i think you you know to quote come together by promise green music is music <laughs>
0: it's, yes
2: you know, if you're into it doesn't matter what it is
0: well i suppose it was when john waters you know the producer of john Peel said if you know John Phill ever reached puberty, we're in trouble. And I guess some people can <laughs> can keep that kind of energy, can't they? In that kind of like, My God, you can't believe what I've just discovered. And you're thinking, A new cooker? No, no, a new seven inch by this young band, you know. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of still being a sixteen, eighteen year old that that is the thing, isn't it really? Yeah,
2: and it feels like it feels you know, I I'm, I'm not under any any uh you know, I don't no no at no point do I think that that's something that you, you know,
1: that I kind of deserve or, you know, I,
2: it feels like a real privilege to have been able to, you know, stay, to stay in that mindset. And I know that's the same for, for Jeff and for Martin and for lots of the bands on the label, you know, it's like, you're given a chance, you know, you, you by, by trying to be, you know, trying to provide this, you know, provide music and make, make, people happy with this kind of music it's like it's a real privilege it's not a you know it's nothing to be sniffed at you can't you can't take it for granted either you know it can go you know know, because thing you know spotify comes along and you can't work out how the bloody hell to sell music and things you know it's like you i think this year more than any any has made a lot of people realize that you know it's it yeah it, it it is a privileged position to be in. It's a wonderful thing, and it's like you you know count your blessings. That, you know we've had a good ride, and you know it's been <laughs> it's been you know it's been fun, and we can't we can't really complain because yeah. we've had some good times.
0: So kind of almost lastly, I mean having seen bands so many bands so close up and seen that kind of often that five year narrative. I mean, what advice would you give anybody who was kind of or, or what did you learn from seeing that creative process of the, the first single, the first album, the tour, the next album? You know, and then that kind of, often, you know, well, that's over. I mean, there's only a few people like David Bowie that's ever happened, you know, who's managed to keep the, the, the kind of career in music and do so successfully. And people like Lemmy, who just kind of forced his career through brilliantly. But, you know, there aren't many people who can keep it. As their full-time job for their whole their whole life, can we?
2: No, I tell you, I, I think I think one piece of advice I'd give I think is listen to people around you. Um, I know that sounds pretty obvious, but there's bands that we worked with who could have taken advice just. When, when you have the chance to, you know, what, what what used to be brilliant about the office was you'd you could kind of road test things. So, you know, Dove's Records, and Etienne Records, whatever, and you play things to a room full of people who you know might be journalists, might just be mates you picked up in the pub, might be you know any you know girlfriends, boyfriends, anyone, you know, the cleaner, um, and you'd be playing music and you'd have. You'd you know you'd have a point have points where, you know you'd think that's that's the single that's how that's going to work, and then occasionally you would get bands just going no 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 it's not it's got to be this it's got to be this got to be this, and invariably they were wrong. Now, it, it's it's a kind of weird sort kind of crowdsourced A and R I'm talking about, but there's nothing like going out and hearing, you know, go to see a band that you love and hearing a track that they play that you've never heard before. And then it's like, what the f- is this? This is amazing. And then the next thing it comes out, it's on record. And you're right. It was amazing. And The Office had an effect a bit like that, where you could play things and you kind of knew that something would work. And then if you got bands who kind of kicked against that, they, they were like, no, 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 you're wrong. It's got to be this. Invariably, that's where problems occurred because... They weren't hearing it in the same way, and i 'm not saying that we were always right because we definitely definitely weren't but there was you know there's there's bands that could have there's bands that could have been bigger had they just swallowed a bit of pride occasionally and so I think listening to people actually realizing that a and r which is what Jeff has done really you know does press really well and does a and r really well it's like a and r is is a valuable thing you know you can you can record in your bedroom and make records and put them out to have somebody actually kind of helping you to shape things it's a it's an underrated art form i think um you know not every no you know i'm sure if you go to you know you've got bands like flowered up who were completely ruined by the a and r that they had at at, at london but you know, if you trust, if you, if you, if you've got someone that you can trust, I think that's pretty invaluable, you know, to have, to have someone else's ears. Um, that would be my only advice really.
0: Yes. Cause I've kind of realized, you know, <laughs> it's one kind of those kind of, i go on about the gatekeepers, but you know, one of the things that was really important, apart from that music press, especially, you know, the, the, the weekly, which people in America would go, my God, you have weekly music pages you just cover <laughs> so many kind of quirky things. You have to fill those pages. Uh, um pages up so you could sort of take a kind of a, a risk but then there was also like every town and city would have all these alternative nights wouldn't they you know like in India yeah. and being able to sort of throw bands out for 20 ga- gigs around the country playing in front of people who weren't their friends family and anybody yeah. else say black you know emotionally blackmail to see them i think was quite important because it kind of made them realize well do you really wanna do you really want this because this is what it's going to be like The transit band playing in front of people you're going to love it on stage but there's the other stuff around it but also you'll learn what songs work and what you know what songs yeah. don't really
2: you know so that's yeah, part, parked up outside the hull Adelphi on a wednesday night in in november it's probably very different to you know to turning up to a london gig that's got you know that your record company you know there's you know record companies manage to get everyone who works there to come out and 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 their mates and kind of you know it's like it's yeah there's 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 real things you have to do, and I, thought, I, I think with, you know, maybe that's maybe that's something that's a that's a bit more. You know, look at bands Idols. You know, Idols worked and did every toilet, and you know, for years and years and years, it took them a long time to get to a point where people people wanted it. But you know, on the other hand, you you know, you have you have kind of what you'd call indie bands you jump straight onto a onto a. You know, think. Think about sort of the, how quickly a band like the vaccines went from nothing to headline of the O two. But really, you know, it's probably I can't. Maybe maybe within a year or something. It's like you know, it's just. I don't know. Yeah.
1: It's
0: not going <laughs> to it yeah,
2: no, yeah. <laughs> it? We just roll out the vaccine. I'll, I'll take the vaccines now. I'll, I'll listen to their records if it has to. If that's what's going to cure me, I'm up
1: for it. <laughs>
0: yeah look so what would you if you could have said something to an, your 18 year old self who was you know <laughs> who was about to sort of you know begin their life in in the world that you music on that you know on the other side of the stage or not on the stage anyway what would you what would you have wanted to sort of you know if there was something you could have just said a few things to what would you what would they be uh
2: <laughs> I don't know I think I'd probably told myself to maybe try and uh, try and remember a bit more I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff you know there's a lot of thing. there's a lot of stupid things we did over the years you know really fun stupid things and they're kind of a weird fog now because you just kept doing stupid things <laughs> it was great it was brilliant but you had, to have to have five minutes to actually you know to I think I think it's when you're in the when you're in the kind of you know the kind of eye of the hurricane of those things you know anything like being in a band, being a, a live agent for a band, being an A and R person, you know I think it's quite easy to just get uh, to get kind of in the spin cycle of, of of what's going on around you, and it would have been really nice to have had points where you know you could actually just savor something rather than. Straight on to the next thing because that's the speed that everything went. Um, yeah, you know, it's I. You I mean, now I miss gigs. You know, my advice to any, my advice to myself of eighteen months ago, not my eighteen-year-old self, would be: don't turn down going to a gig. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Yes. and the amount of gigs now that I can't, you know,
0: did I go to that? Did I go?
2: You know, I remember when I was a teenager. You know, going to see. You know, the, going to see the Smiths and you know Populi itself and people, and I'd go home and I'd meticulously write down all the songs that they played and and you know all that and and have these notebooks full of things and it's like you know that went <laughs> and you know the idea of you know and and it, it would be really nice to have a little bit of that again where you kind of you could just just remember it a bit more. Yeah. God, I'm I'm turning old now.
1: And that is the end of the interview, apart from a few goodbyes, which kind of get a bit messy, really, as you do when you try and say goodbye in a slightly concise way and it doesn't quite happen. Anyway, look, that's the end of the um, interview chat conversation. That was me uh, with Robin Turner talking about Heavenly and the new publication that has come out, Believe in Magic, 30 Years of Heavenly Recordings by Robin Turner and Paul Kelly. Uh, This is available on White Rabbit Books. Do you check it out. It is beautiful. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> it is quite an interesting book. Um, yes. Right. That's it. Oh, yes. My contact details. You can have those if you want. And if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's the C86 show. Um, yes. There you go. But yeah, Did I say Facebook? I'm sure I'm getting Alzheimer's here. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And also all these have been in um, archived and you can get those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show. Anyway, look, this has been David Esau. Have a great week. Stay safe. That's it.